Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we're positively obsessed with dog behavior. My name is Marissa Martino, owner of Pause and Reward Dog Training in Boulder, Colorado. And today I am joined by the amazing Dr. Jennifer Summerfield, veterinarian and professional dog trainer. Welcome, Jennifer. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes. So today's topic is very exciting because we're going to dive into how medical issues can have an impact on behavior. But before we do that, Jennifer, can you start off by telling everyone a little bit about yourself and what you're currently up to? Sure. So I am a full-time practicing veterinarian. I graduated from Ohio State uh, University Vet School in 2011. So I've been doing this seven, uh, almost eight years now. And I work in a, um, it is a general practice. We see mostly dogs and cats, but uh, occasionally some other things too. It's in a (laughs) fairly rural part of West Virginia. So we do get occasional, um, you know, goats and other types of animals. Um, But I do, as part of my job, a lot of behavior work. So I see um, quite a few behavior cases as part of my job there, which works out well because our um, schedule has always allowed us to do house calls and things like that at that practice. So it was relatively easy to fit um, the behavior consultations into that. And when I'm not at work at the clinic, I also do, uh, I write a blog for dog owners called Dr. Jen's Dog Blog that's on dog behavior and training issues. I have a podcast uh, along the same lines called Dog Talk with Dr. Jen. And then at the moment, I am also um, right in the middle of teaching a six-week online course through the Fenzie Dog Sports Academy on um, diagnosis and treatment of behavior problems in dogs, which is pretty cool also. Yeah, that that course looks so good. Yeah, it's been really fun. It's the first time I've done um, anything like that in that format, and it's been really cool to get, you know, feedback and answer questions and everything. Do you think you'll be offering it again, too? I I hope so. I would assume so, since it... um, you know, it's been pretty popular this time around and the students seem to be enjoying it. So I would assume that we'll probably offer it again um, sometime next year. It's so refreshing as a dog trainer to talk with a veterinarian that's interested in behavior and is also a professional dog trainer. So can you tell our audience a little bit about how you got into that? Sure. Um, it's actually a little bit counterintuitive, I think, um, versus what people sometimes expect, because I was interested in, in behavior long before I um, knew I was going to be a veterinarian. Oh, funny. So, <laughs> so I always knew that I wanted to do something along those lines. Um, it's really funny. When I was a kid, I uh, my family didn't even have a dog, you know, but I was just fascinated by, you know, dog behavior and training. And I had books and books and books of like, you know, I mean, the whole, they run the gamut, you know, some of them I I probably wouldn't use today, but you know, pretty much everything (laughs) that was out there, I read all of it. And I just thought it was so interesting. And my family got our uh, first dog when I was about 16. He was a Sheltie named Duncan. And I was very excited, you know, cause finally I could put some of all this, um, you know, (laughs) all the research and everything I'd done to work. So I did, um, Duncan did some agility and we dabbled a little bit in competitive obedience, not super successfully, but you know, for, for the first time, not bad. And so I've always just been really fascinated by that side of things. Mm -hmm. So when I was in college and trying to figure out, you know, as you do what, what to do with my life, totally. (laughs) (laughs) um, I had certainly thought a lot about vet school all along 
Um, but I also did consider getting a PhD and approaching it that way, because of course you can be, you know, an applied animal behaviorist, Mm -hmm. um, from that angle too. So I kind of went back and forth, but I did a uh, research project my senior year in undergrad and discovered that I hated it. (laughs) So, (laughs) So unfortunately I'm going to grad school and getting a PhD does involve a lot more, um, totally of the research kind of stuff. So I figured, well, vet school it is. <laughs> and actually that's worked out well because I, uh, I do enjoy the veterinary side of things mm-hmm. too. You know, since I work in general practice, I do a fair amount of um, just regular vet stuff also. And, and there's a lot to be said for that as well. So it's, uh, it's worked out for the best, I think. That's awesome. And who do you share your life with now in terms of uh, dog? Yeah. Dog wise, I've got uh, three <laughs> Shelties at the moment. So, um, not Duncan anymore. He passed on just a, a couple of years ago, actually. Um, he lived to be like 16. <laughs> so oh, he was wow. an old man, but currently I have, uh, my oldest dog is Remy mm-hmm. who is, he'll be 11 this spring. And, um, I have my middle child Gatsby is, I want to say just turned five in November. Mm-hmm. And then my youngest is Clint, who is about four and a half. And we cute do, names. yeah, <laughs> I try to come up with good ones, you know, Yeah, those are cute names. Um, you know, the joke when you're, when you're a veterinarian or work in that field is you don't want to name your dog something that's in the database already like 500 times, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> try to like be original. Lucky, yes. lucky or chance. <laughs> Not that there's like anything that. wrong with that, but you know, that's always totally. kind of the joke. Um, <sighs> so yeah, and we've done, um, mostly agility, I would say is our, mm-hmm. our big sport at the moment. Remy just finished his POC or his uh, preferred agility championship this past year, which was kind of a big deal for us. That's awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah it was a long time coming. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, the others have, have started, you know, they've got some beginner titles in that and we've done a little bit. Remy has a novice obedience title as well and some pretty advanced rally titles. And, um, he's done a little bit of all of it as yeah. I've, got three of them now of course the effect is as you have more than one dog um you know you have to divide your time so totally (laughs) so each of them don't get quite as much you know intensive training and showing as they used to so or you know but for me it's always been you know I enjoy it and I like to get the titles and things but I've never been super competitive so we're yeah you know we just kind of plug along at our own pace and go to trials when we can and that's awesome it's been fun yeah what a great way to bond and connect and do an activity together, which is so great. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a great thing about dog sports mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that maybe people don't realize if they've never done them, mm-hmm. you know, that it's, you, you know, yes, the competition aspect and stuff is fun, especially, you know, I think there's certainly a spectrum of how much people are into that part of things. For sure. Yeah. But, um, which but can you, then be sometimes <laughs> detrimental. to Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. that in some cases that can happen, you know, yeah. but, um, but yeah, I, I really love just that it gives us something to do together and you know, goals to work towards. Goals to work, yeah. Yeah. And the, I mean, the dogs love it, you know, I mean, they would love, I think anything that we did together, um, but they love getting one-on-one time and getting to learn new things and getting to go on trips with me on the weekends. So it's, um, you know, I think they're pretty happy with it too. That's awesome. So let's jump into our topic today. Um, so we're talking about how medical issues can in, have an impact on canine behavior. So I thought we could start with this question. And this is kind of a big, it's kind of a loaded question. Um, <laughs> but what kinds of medical problems can impact behavior that we know about currently? 
Yeah. So there are definitely lots as, Mm -hmm. as you alluded to, (laughs) and we can, um, I can kind of give you some broad categories. And then if you, if you want to, I don't know how much detail you want, but we can definitely go into um, a little bit more depth on those in turn, if you Mm -hmm. would like to do that. But, um, basically as far as breaking it down into categories of things that we look at that can affect behavior, um, we certainly know that anything that causes pain is going to have an impact on behavior, which I think is fairly intuitive for most people. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we all kind of get like, well, if you have a headache, you might be kind of irritable, right? Totally. (laughs) You might snap at your coworkers (laughs) where you wouldn't otherwise. So, you know, um, our dogs are similar. And, but other things that maybe are a little bit less intuitive would be things like um, GI problems actually can have a pretty significant impact on behavior. Even we're starting to know in the last few years more about that, but it turns out there's actually a pretty um, significant connection between your, your gut health, your GI health Mm -hmm. and uh, mental health. You Mm -hmm. know, even in humans, they're finding a lot of connections there. So that definitely is a factor. Um, we see some hormonal issues in dogs that can impact behavior. So mainly the ones we think of there are going to be, um, thyroid problems and something called Cushing's disease. Um, but those can be a factor. We, and then I probably the other major one is um, that certainly neurologic issues can impact behavior too. So those mm-hmm. are all sort of the things that we try to keep in mind when we're talking about, you know, well, do we think this animal might have any medical issues that could be either causing or making worse, you know, what their behavior problem is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the GI issues, that one is so interesting because I live in Boulder, Colorado, mm-hmm. um, and most dog owners here are very, um, they live a very healthy lifestyle and they're very aware of gluten intolerances or lactose intolerances for themselves. And so when, Mm -hmm. when I start to ask the questions in my private practice, if I'm like, you know, does he, he or she have loose stool or Mm -hmm. what's their eating like? And then, or, you know, are they itchy or, you know, all of those sorts of questions to understand what, like, is the dog having any other chronic issues? Um, they, a lot of my clients will get the connection. Mm -hmm. I think it's because where we live and, and promoting a really good nutritious and healthy lifestyle is part of where we are. And I think a lot of clients, it doesn't take them long to say, Oh wow. Yeah. He, he actually doesn't have really good bowel movements ever. Right. Which is right. A big, and yeah, he feels <laughs> crappy all the time. Right, and I could right. see how he could be, you know, less tolerant of whatever it may be. Right. Um, so that's kind of interesting. P- people are already on their own GI health mm-hmm. and mental wellness that they they definitely kind of understand it, which is, which is yeah. pretty interesting. Yeah. A lot of the research I think into that has been on the human side of things, mm-hmm. um, which is really fascinating. They've yeah. found, I know, um, you know, some links between, you know, things like depression and anxiety and chronic mm-hmm. stress and even things like autism, which is pretty, um, pretty wild, that is pretty you know, wild on the human side of things being related to, um, problems, you know, with mm-hmm. the bacterial population in your intestines. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that's probably pretty important for, yeah. you know, how your brain works and for, you know, being mentally healthy. Yeah. And so it's not a huge leap to, you know, to say, well, that's probably true in dogs as well. Yeah. You know, there's no reason that it wouldn't be. 
Yeah. And lots of times when I, when I'm talking to clients, I'm saying, you know, we, we're going to address that, but we're also, we have to address the learned behavior now because if the dog is barking (laughs) or lunging or escalating in a specific situation, they've learned that behavior in context and it works for them on some level. So just because if we, you know, add a probiotic or, you know, change the food or, or whatever it is that we decide to do to help the GI tract, we're not going to just simply solve all of the behavior. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. And I do think that's important to keep in mind that if there Mm -hmm. is a medical issue there, obviously we do want to try to identify it and treat it if we can. And that hopefully that should help things, but frequently Mm -hmm. it's not going to completely solve the behavior problem all on its own. For sure. So, you know, it's, it's usually a contributing factor and not like the primary cause in most cases. Yeah. There are obviously some exceptions to that, but usually that's more how it works. Mm -hmm. And so, um, what about hypothyroidism? Is, is, is this often a cause of behavior problems? Do you see that in your practice? Yeah. So that's a really good question. And So the thing with hypothyroidism is it gets a ton of attention, as you probably know, like in in the sort of um, lay press, as, you know, being like, oh, you know, if your dog's aggressive, you got to check its thyroid. That's probably the problem, Um, you know, and and gets kind of built up as this really strong link. And certainly there are some anecdotal cases where that seems to be true. And there Mm -hmm. has been some research in humans, you know, linking it to, well, okay, it does seem like people with thyroid problems may be more prone to things like depression and anxiety and that it may affect serotonin levels and things. So that's all, you know, it makes sense, right, to think that 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 might play a pretty significant role. So where it gets murky is that's never really been demonstrated as like a common trend, you know, in any sort of large scale peer reviewed study in dogs. There mm-hmm. have been studies looking at thyroid and behavior in dogs. And for the most part, they just don't find much. Um, there was one that came out um, earlier this year and I'm trying to remember which one it was. I just got done talking about this topic in our online class <laughs> and we talked about several <laughs> studies, so I don't want to get them confused, but um There was one that was done earlier this year looking at a population of dogs that all had demonstrated hypothyroidism and um, they had owners fill out like a behavioral questionnaire before they started treatment to, you know, catalog anything the dogs were doing as far as, you know, anxiety or aggression Mm -hmm. or things like that. And then they put them on treatment for their hypothyroidism and they rechecked them you know, six weeks later, and I think six months later as well, it was a pretty fairly long-term study that way to um, basically verify that the medication was working and their thyroid levels were normal now and everything was good. And they looked at whether there was any measurable difference in any of those behavioral parameters, you know, before they were on their meds versus after. Um, and there wasn't, <laughs> the only thing that was wow. different was like their energy level, which makes sense. You know, that's a, yeah. a common thing with hypothyroidism. Um hmm so, you know, that's that's the thing is it doesn't seem to be this huge widespread problem. I can tell you that in my personal experience, you know, I certainly see lots of anxious and aggressive dogs <laughs> and a fair number of them. Um, we do check their thyroid because that's something that owners often are aware of when they come in. You know, they mm-hmm. often say, oh, you know, I heard I should have his thyroid checked. And I say, mm-hmm. we can absolutely check it if you want to. I am still waiting for there to be a dog whose thyroid was low, who improved dramatically when we supplemented with medication. I have never yet seen that be a major contributing factor. Mm -hmm. Um, So not that it can't happen. I've certainly heard, you know, anecdotal case reports. There's some in the literature 
And there's some just um, more casually, you know, talking to other vets and saying, hey, have you ever seen this? And they say, oh, yeah, there was this one case this one time, you know, 12 years ago. Yeah. So I think it probably does happen. But I think how often it, it's a contributing factor gets pretty overblown mm-hmm. in my experience. Yeah. So that's probably the takeaway is it's never wrong to check it. You know, absolutely mm-hmm. check it if you're curious. Just um, don't be surprised if that's not the problem. Yeah. <laughs> it usually is it? not the fix <laughs> Sadly. All. Which is a shame because I know that's why people want it to be the problem. Um, yeah, I would sure. love for it to be the problem too because sure. saying, oh, your dog just needs a medication twice a day is so much easier than any of the other things we can do yeah. about aggression or anxiety. Yeah, it's such an emotional journey for a lot of yeah. for a lot of dog owners um, yeah. to to really have a dog that's aggressive and be able to manage it and feel safe and be able to trust the dog and yeah, so I can understand why they're sort of hoping yeah. for the one. Oh the yeah, one and that would be awesome. I'm hoping yeah. someday I'll see one and it'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what are some red flags that should make us think about medical issues? as opposed to just behavior? Yeah. So the two biggest ones, I would say, just in general across the board, regardless of what type of behavior problem you're talking about, would be anytime you have kind of a sudden behavior change in an older pet, and by Mm -hmm. older, it doesn't have to be like elderly, but just older than sort of the typical age that most dogs present with behavior issues, which is Mm -hmm. normally one to three years of Mm -hmm. age, Um, young adults right around the time they reach social maturity is when Mm -hmm. they usually come in for problems with, you know, fear, aggression, or various types of anxiety or what have you. Mm -hmm. So if I get a dog that comes in, that's, you know, six years old, you know, or eight years old, and they say, well, he just started this, you know, and, and sometimes there's been a history that's just kind of been gradually escalating. Yeah. Um, You know, and if you dig into the, the details a little bit, you can find that. But a lot of times, um, if there really isn't much in the way of a history of problems or if maybe there was, but it was always really low level and suddenly there's been a jump, you know, with no obvious cause. It's not like, Oh, we just moved, you know, or Oh, we just had a baby or something that could explain it. Mm -hmm. Then um, that tends to really put medical issues on the radar, you know, pretty significantly. Mm -hmm. So that's a big one. Um, And of course, probably the other one, which is pretty intuitive for most people is that if we have any other symptoms that would suggest, mm-hmm. you know, a possible medical problem, like you said. So, um, you know, if, sorry, that's my cat. <laughs> she had that, she wanted to pipe in. She, I was going to say, she has she's a red flag she'd like to talk about. Yeah, she's like, excuse me, you didn't say this. Um, so one of the things that you had alluded to, for example, with like GI issues in dogs, is if I have a dog that's coming in for, you know, some type of behavior issue, they're aggressive or they're anxious or whatever. But, you know, the owners say, well, yeah, he's always had, you know, he's, he's never had a form stool, you know, mm-hmm. since we've had him, like it's always been kind of soft serve or, um, you so know, they sad. say, exactly. I know. Like that's, that's terrible. Yeah. Um, even if it's not related to the behavior issue, that's pretty terrible, it's pretty um, terrible. for everybody involved. Um, you know, or if they say <laughs> uh, one of the big ones is dogs who are really picky eaters, Mm-hmm. Um, assuming they're not overweight, obviously mm-hmm. it's different if they're a picky eater because, because they're really chunky and they just have had plenty of calories already for the day, you know, uh-huh. but for dogs who, um, are a good weight or even who are sometimes a little underweight and have trouble putting on weight, mm-hmm. um, who are just really picky eaters, mm-hmm. you can't really get them that into treats. They pick at their food. Sometimes that can be a red flag that there are some GI issues going on there that, um, the owners may not be aware of. Mm-hmm. And one of the tricky things, um, a little bit of a tangent, I guess, but (laughs) related is with GI issues, 
um, that's a little counterintuitive is that some of these dogs do not have any like outward obvious signs of GI problems. So people tend to think, I think that like, well, if he had GI issues, I mean, he doesn't vomit, you know, like it's not like he's mm-hmm. throwing up every day or like, well, he doesn't have diarrhea, um, which is, and it's true if they do have those signs, then obviously that makes our job a lot easier. If they say, well, he vomits three times a week too, that's probably not normal. Um, but you know, some of these dogs that just have sort of smoldering low level issues, like, you know, chronic pancreatitis or, um, you know, inflammatory bowel disease or some kind of a food allergy or intolerance, they just have like chronic low level inflammation there all the time, you know, and it Mm -hmm. may not be enough that they're actually vomiting. Um, and sometimes they're not actually having diarrhea, but it's just, you know, we can't ask them how they feel, but I would assume from a human perspective, you know, on those things that they probably just feel kind of queasy and not great a lot of the time, Mm -hmm. you know, which certainly can affect their appetite. And, um, of course also can affect their behavior, you know, not Mm -hmm. surprisingly. So, um, so those things always make me think I I ask pretty hard questions about, um, the dog's eating habits usually in in his poop, (laughs) which I think sometimes surprises owners because they're like, well, how's that related? Um, so yeah. Oh, another thing um, that's interesting about GI issues while we're on that topic is, um, dogs who obsessively like lick surfaces, If you've ever Mm -hmm. seen a dog who does that, people say like, oh, he'll spend, you know, 30 minutes or 45 minutes just licking the floor in the kitchen if we let him. Um, Very often related to nausea in dogs, which is pretty interesting. So, yeah, as far as other things, you know, that's a pretty good rundown GI wise um, of some of the things that we look for. But some of the other things with other problems are going to depend a little bit on, you know, what the, the issue is. So, for example, with hypothyroidism, Mm -hmm. right? We would, to be suspicious of that, um, ideally we'd like to see some other potential signs of hypothyroidism rather than just some kind of behavioral abnormality. Mm -hmm. So that would usually be things like, um, when you have a low thyroid, usually you gain weight and you're maybe not as hungry. You don't have as much energy. And -hmm. a lot of these dogs have some skin issues as well. Like their coat might be kind of dull or flaky or, um, sometimes one of the big things with hypothyroidism that can be a tip off is if the dog has been clipped for some reason or, you know, shaved like either, you know, for a grooming or for like Mm -hmm. a surgery or an IV catheter or something, the hair doesn't grow back or it takes it a really Mm, long time in that place where it was shaved. So sometimes when clients come in, um, usually these aren't behavior clients, they're just regular clients. Yeah. But sometimes when they come in and, you know, we're talking and their dog's seven or eight years old in the exam room and I say, oh, you know, I see, you know, had a, a haircut there, you know, and they say, yeah, you know, we got that like last year and it just, you know, hasn't really... Back back, very well. Yeah. I say, yeah, we probably want to do some blood work. Yep. Um, so yeah, that's a biggie. Um, obviously with neurologic problems, a lot of those dogs will give us some other tip offs, you know, that something's not right. Like you'll notice, you know, changes in their, um, like their mentation. So how responsive they are or how they're acting sometimes, or, um, they'll sometimes do other odd things like circling or, um, acting like they're uncoordinated, things like that. So mm-hmm. anything like that, that seems like, well, I don't know if we could explain that completely with a behavior problem that tends to make us think there's probably something else there that we should dig into. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Along those lines, in terms of red flags, should, should trainers always try to rule out medical issues before starting a behavior modification plan 
Or another way to say this is when is when is a vet visit appropriate? Like what right. what order should all of this stuff happen? Right. And that's that's such a good question. And I wish that the answer was really straightforward. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what my feelings <laughs> are about it. Yeah. Right. That what I sometimes I am a little bit well, frustrated is not the right word. Sometimes I think in some ways there are some problems with that advice. And I do hear that a lot, right? Kind of thrown around all the time, like, well, before you do anything else, you need to rule out medical problems, right? Mm -hmm. Make sure it's not medical. Um, so go to your vet. And I know that, um, you know, some trainers and behavior consultants um, have a policy, you know, where they require people to have a recent vet visit and maybe a, a blood panel or something like that mm -hmm. before they work with them, um, which isn't unreasonable, you know, and certainly everybody you know, has every right to decide what they want to do, you know, for the clients that they work with. For sure. But I'll tell you from a veterinary perspective, sort of what I think isn't fabulous sometimes about, about that approach. So I think that sometimes there's a little bit of misunderstanding about what we can actually find out from a physical exam and some basic lab work. Right. Mm -hmm. So a physical exam is certainly going to tell us things like, well, does this dog have an ear infection, you know, or do they have raging dental disease or do mm -hmm. they have, you know, raging allergies or something like that? You know, some of those obvious things that we can see on the outside that certainly can cause physical discomfort. And I agree if there's a dog with a raging ear infection, we probably want to treat that before we worry mm -hmm. about getting his you know, owner directed aggression. Yeah. Under control. Um, which makes total sense. But, well, and we can also see things like, of course, we can evaluate their gait. You know, hopefully we can do some kind of orthopedic exam. We might be able to tell if they seem stiff or if they're limping or um, things like that. And when we do general blood work on these guys, usually what, what we're talking about when we say we're going to run just some basic, basic labs or basic blood work is going to be something called a CBC, which stands for complete blood count and a chemistry panel. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe thyroid, maybe not, depending on whether the owners want that. But that basically is going to tell us things like um, what our red blood cell count is and our white blood cell count and our, um, give us some information about liver and kidney function and all that. So it's going to tell us, you know, is this dog anemic? Do they have a bleeding disorder? Do they have evidence of some kind of um, raging infection? Mm -hmm. Do they have, you know, organ dysfunction problems? You know, so those things, which are useful, I mean, don't get me wrong, um, they're especially useful in dogs who come in acting sick because those are the big things that we want to see in those guys. But in terms of telling us whether the dog has um, some of these problems that we've been talking about, mm -hmm. right, like whether it has inflammatory bowel disease or whether it has a brain tumor or whether it has, um, you know, hypothyroidism or, well, mm -hmm. the thyroid we can we can check if owners want um, with that screening test. Although even that, a lot of times you really have to send a thyroid panel off if you want to know, you know, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, but basically, a lot of the things that we know can cause behavior issues in dogs or can contribute to them are things that are not going to show up on a physical exam or not going to show up on basic blood work. Um, getting a diagnosis on some of those things can be really challenging, mm -hmm. which is, you know, kind of a whole other issue. But and it's especially true if you're talking about a dog that is really tense or aggressive at the vet's office. Um, even less productive. <laughs> yes, I would imagine. Yes, so. because, you know, they're certainly with some of these dogs, um, you know, we can't handle them or examine them without sedation, you know, mm -hmm. so of course that's going to really limit how much you can tell. You can't, you know, palpate along their, their hips and their spine and things to see if they're painful, if they're asleep. Yeah. Um, so that's challenging. And even dogs who are really anxious, if they're super stiff and worried the whole time, it also limits, you know, how much really kind of subtle information you can get yeah. from the exam. 
Um, so I think that's important to be aware of. It's not that it's a bad idea. You know, I mean, certainly I'm, I'm a vet, go to your vet for sure. Yeah. You know, go and, and have an exam done if you think it's a good idea. But I just think that we do need to be aware of what that tells us and what it doesn't. And I often see people kind of say, well, you know, he's been to the vet and, and they ruled out anything medical, you know, so we know it's not that. Um, and that's usually not the case, you know, just going to the vet and having a normal physical exam and yeah. maybe some normal basic blood work does not in any way rule out most of the medical issues that we're concerned about. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, at least for me personally, you know, as far as my policies with clients, I don't recommend, or I mean, I don't, I'm require rather, you know, any particular lab work or anything across the board. Um, mm -hmm. There are certainly cases where I'm going to strongly suggest it. And we'll talk about why with those clients to, you know, to see if that's something they can do. But I don't find it super useful to require across the board for a couple of reasons. And one is, I think it's a good idea to consider that for many clients, this is an added barrier, right? If we say, well, you have to do this before we can do anything mm -hmm. with the behavior, that there's a financial barrier there, right? You yeah. know, by the time you factor in where I live for an exam and just your, you know, lab work plus minus thyroid, you're going to be looking at 250 or $300 probably. And I know in a lot of places, it's probably quite a bit more than that. In West Virginia, mm -hmm. a lot of our costs tend to be a little on the lower side than the national average. Um, and for some people that may not be a big deal, but for an awful lot of clients, 250 or $300 is a lot of money. That may be the difference between whether they can have something done for their dog or not. You know, I'd rather have them yeah. spend that 250 or $300 paying the behavior consultant that's going to help them. I was just going to say, and that, and that doesn't even, that doesn't even take into consideration the training and the exactly. behavior consultant fee. Exactly. And the other factor, of course, obstacle wise is that for, I mean, for some of these dogs, depending on what their problem is, it may not be difficult to take them into the vet. But as you know, I'm sure for many uh -huh. of them, it is for many of them, it's a production, right? Like people say, oh my gosh, I need to take him into the vet. Like, yeah, he it's has so to be, much stress for everyone he has to involved. be sedated with the yeah. rabies pole. And you know, it's this whole thing. And again, not, I mean, sometimes we need to, like, sometimes yeah. that's absolutely really valuable information. And I don't mean for it to sound like, well, you know, it's not that important to see your vet. Totally. But I think that if you have like a sort of your basic, you know, one or two year old dog presenting with fear aggression, that's, mm -hmm. you know, very typical, right. You know, very, there's nothing about the case that's like, oh, that's weird. Um, it's just important to realize that having that dog go into their vet for a physical exam and blood work is likely to be incredibly low yield in yeah. terms of useful information. Um, so, you know, like I said, not that it's wrong to do it. I think everybody kind of has to make their own decision about that. And I do totally get that it's harder for behavior consultants who aren't veterinarians maybe to feel comfortable making the call about like, yeah. well, does this dog need to see the vet or not? Like, I don't know. Um, so I get that. And maybe in some ways it is easier for me to do it on a case by case basis. Cause you know, at least I have that, that knowledge to fall back on and say, well, this case, you know, maybe has medical issues. This case, we don't really see any evidence of that. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if there's an easy across the board answer there, Yeah. Absolutely. but those are the things that I sort of, I wish people, um, sometimes understood a little bit better is kind of the limitations of what we can find out from 
from just an exam and just sort an of your, initial exam, exactly yeah. just the initial exam and basic lab work and and whether that's really a super useful thing to like require in every case. Mm-hmm. Do you have just out of curiosity? Do you have trainers in your area that reach out to you and ask you questions? Like, you know, I have this case and, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm getting a sense that there might be a medical issue underlying or maybe not even an underlying cause, but maybe even contributing to this. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Do trainers reach out to you and and utilize you as a resource? That's great. Okay. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm always happy to work with anybody in the area who wants to, you know, bounce ideas off of Mm -hmm. me or, you know, if it's something they want to send me to look at from a medical standpoint, I can certainly do that. So I think it's good to work together with who's in your area as much as you can. Yeah, that's great. And and I've been really impressed with Colorado. We have a a wonderful, like in the Denver metro area, we have a a wonderful Facebook group of trainers. And there is actually some veterinary behaviorists on there as well. So we're, we're able to sort of bounce ideas off one another, which is really great. So, so helpful when you're not, you know, out meeting with clients and just, you know, hang, hanging out by yourself, right. And just trying right. to make the calls. It's really great to bounce ideas off of everyone. So that's great. People are reaching out to you. Right. Um, and our last question for the episode is we know that some medications can be used to treat behavior issues. This is a pretty, pretty hot topic. Um, yes. right now, <laughs> Um, uh, which is, we can do a is, whole separate podcast on that. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, and I, my my question is: Is there are there any meds that can actually cause issues like aggression or anxiety as potential side effects? So there um, there are, and that's certainly a good thing to be aware of. That's obviously probably one of the questions that you're going to ask your clients when you talk to them as part of your history. Is you know are they on any medications and mm-hmm. you know, did they start any of them recently? Anything like that. Um, so we certainly can see issues with some meds and it doesn't mean that they're bad medications or anything like mm-hmm. that. It's just, they all have, every medication has possible side effects, you know? So mm-hmm. sometimes we don't think about, um, behavior stuff as being a possible side effect in the same way that we do like, well, it might make him have diarrhea, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. So some of the more common ones there that I, I certainly always pay attention to or, um, ask about if, if there's a history of the dog being on them is, um, interestingly, the, uh, like medications like Xanax and Valium, you know, which are, they're in a class of drugs called benzodiazepines and they're medications that we use quite a bit for certain types of anxiety in dogs, like panic disorders and things like that. But something to be aware of with them is they are kind of known for causing, um, what's called disinhibition of aggression (laughs) in dogs. So, um, you know, and again, it certainly doesn't do it in every dog. It doesn't even do it in the majority of dogs who take it, but it does it in enough of them <laughs> that it's, you know, certainly useful to be aware of. I know that we, uh, we had a dog, it was kind of a funny story that came into our clinic, um, for grooming a while back. And he was a, a big Bouvier, which, um, for so if your listeners, some of your listeners might not know what that is. It's a very large, hairy, like kind of looks like a bear, <laughs> dog, very large and hairy, um, who came in and, and he'd always been anxious, you know, kind of a nervous guy. And he was never really thrilled to be there for his grooming appointment, but we'd never had any trouble with him. Um, his name was Bo. And so I remember that the groomer came over to the clinic one day and she said, guys, I have a problem. She said, I, I can't get Bo out of his kennel. And we said, what do you mean you can't get Bo out of his kennel? Like, you know, you know, just, you know, and she was like, no, I mean, I can't get him out of his kennel. He's like trying to eat me. So we all had to 
We all had to go next door to the grooming facility to see certain that indeed Bo was, you know, snarling and lunging and yeah, to anybody who tried to get into his kennel. So we were like, well, that's new. Um, you know, so we, we closed his kennel and we said, it's okay, buddy, we're gonna, we're gonna call your owner and, you know, get a plan together and no worries. So we called his owner and we said, yeah, you know, we're, we've been having some, some trouble with Bo today and wanted to talk to you about you know, a plan. What can we do for him? Maybe we need to, you know, reschedule this visit, obviously, and try to do something different. And she said, oh, that's a shame because I was really hoping he would do better this time because I gave him a Xanax before he came today. And I said, ah, I said, okay. Yeah. I said, good thought, good thought, but let's, let's reschedule this visit and don't do that <laughs> next time. And I believe, I can't remember. I think we did put him on a different um, anti-anxiety medication just to help, you know, cause he was pretty nervous for his grooming, but that was one of the most dramatic cases I remember, um, of, you know, aggression that did seem to be very much related to the medication in that case. And that's um, fairly common with those drugs. So, you know, again, not that you shouldn't use them cause there are cases where they're really handy, but I, um, I'm cautious about using them in dogs that have any, um, history of aggression, you know, in, in any of the contexts where we're going to be giving the medication, so like I might not use them for a separation anxiety dog if the dog is like loose with its housemates that sometimes it's cranky with or something like that. Um, so just something to be aware of. Like I said, they're good drugs, but but I've occasionally seen some um, fairly dramatic <laughs> aggressive behavior in dogs that are on them. And I should say, if that happens, it's not a disaster. It's, you know, because it's not permanent or anything. It'll wear off as soon as the medication wears off. But um, obviously not the effect that we're going for. <laughs> so usually we would try something different then. And I do try to, to caution owners about that anytime I prescribe those meds that like, hey, this is a thing that could happen. So just be aware and let me know if it does. So yeah, some of the other meds that we see that, that maybe aren't that well known either. Um, so the medication prednisone, which is really common, right? We use it to treat all kinds mm -hmm. of things like, you know, short-term allergy issues and autoimmune diseases and like inflammatory diseases, all kinds of different things that get treated with prednisone. And it unfortunately can have um, quite a few different side effects. The most common side effects we see with it are things like um, drinking a lot and peeing a lot. Some dogs will have accidents in the house when they're on it, which is a big bummer for everybody. But mm -hmm. um, I do see dogs sometimes that get really like grouchy and irritable mm -hmm. <laughs> when they take it. And I hear from humans, I've never been on it luckily, but I hear um, from a lot of my human clients who have been on it that it, it does like sometimes make you feel... Um, you know, kind of irritable and and not great. So we mm -hmm. certainly do seem to get that effect in dogs sometimes as well. A um, couple other meds that that occasionally we can see problems with. I don't know if you're familiar with acepromazine as a mm -hmm. something that yes. yeah yeah that um, probably unfortunately still gets used as kind of an anti anxiety medication sometimes. Yep. Um, we don't really use it much for that, but we, it is pretty common to use as a pre-med for surgical procedures and things like that. Yep. And, you know, usually it doesn't do this, but occasionally it can cause um, what they call idiosyncratic aggression in dogs, mm -hmm. which is a lot of times pretty dramatic. Like sometimes it's, it's a dog that like normally is really mild mannered and doesn't have any issues that might like get into a huge fight with their housemate dog or, you know, bite their owner over something totally unprecedented. Um, so yeah. again, not common, you know, certainly we use that medication a lot in the hospital and, and don't normally see problems with it. I know it gets prescribed still to a lot of dogs for anxiety things and it doesn't normally I know. cause those issues there either. Um, but it can, so just something to be aware of that if the dog does something really out of character and they were on that medication, that could be part of the reason. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then some sort of lesser known ones, like uh, there's a medication called Apoquel for allergies that um, there have been some case reports of dogs showing, you know, really out of character, aggressive behavior while they're on it. Um, so that can happen. There's a medication called phenobarbital that gets used for seizures mm-hmm. a lot. Same thing. So mm-hmm. again, with all these meds, it's not certainly not all the time. Um, and it's not even the majority of dogs. It's a small number. But it's just useful, I think, for owners to know that that could be a medication side effect. You know, that behavioral side effects in general do exist. It's not just, you know, things like having diarrhea Physical. or drinking more or whatever. So yeah. anytime, if your dog's recently started a new medication and they're they're acting different somehow, um, definitely talk to your vet about that because, you know, it, it's usually a pretty easy fix. You know, none of these issues that I'm aware of ever cause like permanent, you know, it's not like your dog's going to be this way now. Like you probably just want to, you may want to take him off the medication and use something else. So that's where your vet yeah. can help you. But um, just useful to be aware of because I don't know if it's always yeah. on the radar for people. Yeah, that that makes sense that people are not necessarily looking at behavior side effects as well. They're mm-hmm. really looking for physical. Right. So, yeah, that that is a great reminder for trainers as well as any dog professional, really, to, to be encouraging owners to look at both sides. Right. Right. Yeah, I know I have a... Uh, a German shepherd patient that um, has a lot of allergy issues that are hard for us to get under control sometimes, but she, she can't be on prednisone because every time mm-hmm. we give it to her, she gets into a fight with her sister at home, her housemate. <laughs> yeah. And it took us a few times to realize that that was the pattern, you know, cause yeah. you know, again, it's not something that you look for as much with it as, as you do things like drinking and peeing and yeah. things, but yeah, now her owner's Absolutely. like, she can't take that. She gets into a fight with her sister every time. <laughs> So, so yeah, that can happen. Yep. Well, this has been so helpful. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise today. And please remind listeners where they can find you, your podcast, all your great resources. Yeah. So my blog is at um, drjensdogblog.com or, you know, you can just search Dr. Jen's dog blog and it should come right up. The mm-hmm. podcast is Dog Talk with Dr. Jen, which you can search on iTunes or, you know, wherever you get podcasts and it should come right up there as well. Mm-hmm. And then, awesome. well, the Finzi course um, registration just closed yesterday for that, actually. So if you're not signed up yet, sadly, you can't take it this time around. But if you're interested in, um, you know, being aware of the next time it's offered, which I would assume probably would be sometime next year. Or if you want to mm-hmm. check out any of the other really awesome classes that they have yeah. there, um, that is uh, FenzyDogSportsAcademy.com. So thank you so much for today. And before we go, be sure to subscribe to Canine Conversations wherever you find your podcasts. You can find episode notes and bonus materials, like I mentioned, at CanineConvos.com. And as a reminder, I'm Marissa Martino, owner of Pause and Reward Dog Training in Boulder, Colorado. And you can find me online at pauseandreward.com. Thanks so much for listening today. Our theme music is called Funny Song, and it's provided royalty-free from bensound.com. Our audio is mixed and edited by James Eady at beheard.org.uk. And lastly, our logo is from Walker Hooper. You can find his work on Instagram at walkers underscore username. Thanks so much, and thanks for tuning in. Thank you.